Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Evan Myers. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published only by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Will Hahn. Will is senior counsel at the Beckett Fund, a nonprofit public interest legal and educational institute with a mission to protect the free expression of all faiths. He is also a non-resident fellow right here at the American Enterprise Institute. For our spring 2022 issue, Will authored an essay arguing that originalism's ascendance in the American judiciary has led to the reemergence of old debates about how to apply originalism and textualism in practice. In the heat of these disputes, Will points us to the work of Yale Law professor Alexander Bickel, who argued that the best way of finding the original understanding was not through applying technical rules, but rather allowing statecraft and historical insight to guide justices, determining how the judiciary should exercise its judgment in a manner consistent with the American political tradition. Will, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I think you're actually our first return guest, so it's, it's really good to have you back on. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And yeah, so um, as we mentioned, Will, your essay is based on the idea that originalism is ascendant in the American judiciary all the way up to the Supreme Court. You know, to support that claim, you point to Justice Kagan's statement that we're all originalists now. And since your essay was published, we have a newly confirmed justice, considered a more progressive leading justice, Katanji Brown Jackson. She told Congress in her confirmation hearings that, that she focuses on original public meaning, is constrained by an adherence to the text. Uh, so also suggesting that she subscribes to an originalist philosophy. Do you think a justice like Justice Jackson uh, is sincere when she makes appeals to originalism? Does this mean the originalism has truly triumphed? Or is it the case that, you know, if everyone's saying they're originalist, does it really mean anything? Like, that's a more pessimistic view. But, you know, does that just mean that originalism is meaningless now? So what are your thoughts on that, Will? I think originalism has triumphed as a matter of how we think about the law, approach the courts, and think about how the judiciary relates to the rest of American government and political life. I think the statements you referenced are evidence of that, and that is a legitimate achievement. If you want to look back into the 1970s and the early 1980s, uh, no one was a self-identified originalist except for a handful a handful of of a few academics and even then it was it was extremely hard to be to be one and you think about the rise of the federalist society an equally impressive achievement there was a line i think uh, ken crib had mentioned to to ed meese when they were in the justice department together looking at potential candidates for the bench and they talked about how they couldn't go with any people who had gray beards because the people who had gray beards didn't agree with them. They they're, they're, they're essentially weren't uh, self-identified originalists. Um, so that is, this is a legitimate achievement. And for originalism and those who subscribe to it, it, it is an achievement to celebrate. Well, if that's the case, I guess, you know, the natural follow-up question, Will, is, you know, if we're all originalists now, you know, why don't we all agree? If we're all subscribing to the same philosophy, you know, why is there so much disagreement still? And, you know, where does that leave legal debates today? I mean, if, if we all are, are originalists, then what are we really arguing about? Yeah, sure. I think, I think it's necessary in order to answer that question to first kind of go back a little bit and think about how originalism became ascendant. And I think there's kind of two key issues that need, at least from a kind of theoretical standpoint, that need to be considered there. One is, is that originalism 
rose to ascendancy principally by defining itself by what it was against as opposed to what it was for. If you look at a lot of the earlier debates among conservatives in reaction to the Warren court, there was a strong desire for theory. This was something that even before Robert Bork, and obviously I talk a lot about Alexander Bickle in the essay, but even before them, someone like Wilmore Kendall debating with Harry Jaffa, there was a strong desire for needing a theory that would comprehensively explain the proper role of the Supreme Court in American life and the kind of consensus position among many conservatives that was adopted in light of those very intense debates that went in a lot of different directions was to say, well, originalism at least tells us that all of the excesses of the Warren Court are not justified. We, we may not be able to all completely agree, for example, on what the scope of the freedom of speech means as an original matter, but surely it doesn't include pornography, for example, or like, or, or, um, you know, it, you can think about the eighth amendment and the death penalty. This is an example that justice Scalia went back to again and again, which is that surely we can agree that whatever, however you want to approach the definition of cruel and unusual punishment, it cannot be understood to prohibit a, a punishment that is, in a way, specified in the text of the Constitution itself when the Constitution says that you can take someone's life with due process of law. So in many ways, originalism was defined by what it was against as opposed to what it was for. That had principled merit behind it. It also served as an effective coalition building tool because you didn't have to agree on all of the sources that could render a constitutional decision legitimate, but you could just say that these certain things are just kind of out of the camp, so to speak. And now, though, we're in a different situation. Now, originalism isn't really being defined against what it is against, but it is being applied affirmatively in practice by self-described originalists. And so they have to now think more about the affirmative question of, well, what does it mean substantively and affirmatively to apply originalist methods? How do we construe these constitutional texts in light of original meaning? It's not enough to just say certain results are excluded. Now we need to think about substantively and affirmatively, what does this interpretive method do for us? And that's raised all of these different kinds of questions that really go back to a lot of the earlier debates about the proper role of the judiciary in relation to the American regime. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems like a good problem to have for, the, for those who want to advance a conservative jurisprudence. I mean, would you agree that, you know, originalists that are, you know, we're no longer trying to just rein in the excesses of the Warren Court, but actually figure out how originalism can be applied in practice? I mean, that's a better problem to have, don't you think? I think that's right. And one of the reasons why I, I spent a lot of time focusing on Professor Bickle's work is that he rightly identifies in the morality of consent that our tradition as Americans is really a combination of two principal traditions. One is a kind of contractarian tradition that's rooted in the social contract thought experiment. It's more individualistic in its thinking about its relationship to government power, more rationalistic in terms of the kinds of tools and ways of understanding knowledge. But then also what he, he would describe as a kind of Whig tradition that rewards more kind of organic development of knowledge through tradition and custom and locality and a little bit more of a tolerance for just the, the messiness of living in a big country with diverse and pluralistic communities. And we've always been that way as Americans. I mean, you can even, the Declaration of Independence in some ways is a good example of this, where it begins with a very broad statement 
of theoretical principles about individual rights and the proper role of government. And then what follows that is a series of specific indictments against the King of England about a certain way of life that he had interfered with in the colonies. And notably, the declaration is kind of studiously ambiguous about whether the kind of government that existed before the declaration was a government fit for, or before the king's abuses rather, was a government fit for a free people. So we've always had this tension, these two different kinds of traditions informing us. And at least within the confines of a debate through the lens of original meaning and his, or history-based jurisprudence more generally, we're having a debate about the application of those traditions. And that is, that is a, a positive development because it's a very American debate to have. Yeah, well, you mentioned Alexander Bickle there. Why did you choose to focus on him in particular in this essay? Uh, why do you think his thought is still relevant to debates today about how to apply originalism in practice? Yeah, there, there are a number of different reasons why I thought he would be an appropriate person to look back to. One is to have to understand a little bit about the world before originalism kind of emerged as a consensus position. There was this desire for theory among a lot of uh, conservative critiques of the Warren court, but there were substantial differences about what exactly that theory would consist of, whether it would be rooted in a kind of popular sovereignty, maybe rooted in the ideals of the Declaration of Independence? Should it be a theory that's principally focused on defining what makes a constitutional decision legitimate? Should it be a theory that's more focused on constraining the courts? Should it be a theory that um, isn't is more focused on the framers' intentions and legitimacy? Or is it a theory that gives some space for the development of uh, foundational principles over time while ensuring continuity with those principles? Unlike the originalist ascendancy, which focuses on this kind of oppositional posture and bakes into a lot of, at least the, the early ap approach to originalism, bakes into that a commitment to majoritarianism that's kind of unquestioned, a commitment to judicial restraint that's kind of unquestioned, and they're all interwoven. Bickle, I think, was a, a theorist who probably wouldn't describe himself as a theorist <laughs> and, 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 and looked at, and looked at all of these strands kind of independently to say, well, what in our tradition would justify a constitutional decision that doesn't clearly follow from the text itself? And that's really the question that a lot of originalists are struggling with when they look at the original meaning of a constitutional provision and it doesn't point in one direction necessarily. So I think he's, a, he's someone who's instructive to, to help answer those questions. Yeah, and for Bickle, the, the case that really concentrated his mind is Brown versus Board of Education, right? Absolutely. Yep. The, the least dangerous branch, the, perhaps the most famous book that, that Bickle wrote, was principally an attempt to justify Brown versus Board of Education. He, Bickle had served as a law clerk uh, to Justice Felix Frankfurter on the Supreme Court when Brown was decided, and he wrote a memo while he was a law clerk kind of detailing what the originalist case would be with regard to Brown. And he ultimately justifies the, the result in Brown on the fact that it gave space for localities to apply our foundational uh, commitment to equality before the law through kind of practical political consensus building measures. And so that combination of commitment to our foundational ideals through the continuous kind of process of accommodation and consensus building that's a part of our system was something that appealed to Bickle. And it's for that same reason that he would then go on to criticize much of the Warren Court's decisions in reapportionment and election law cases and First Amendment cases and elsewhere as his writings went on. 
Yeah. Now, now, of course, Bickle had a Yale colleague, Robert Bork, who is who's really considered the godfather of the originalism, you know, that we're discussing today. And and part of what your, makes your essay so interesting, in, in my opinion, is that Bickle has has been largely forgotten, and you're sort of bringing him back to us. You know, but Bork is the one people tend to remember. And the, in the essay, you point out Bickle and Bork's similarities. Of course, uh, they both had a commitment to what you write. You know, you call a hard, sharp doctrine to control judicial review. You say they both have an appreciation for the interpretive significance of a provision's original understanding, and they both, of course, thought that the Warren Court had totally wrongly irrigated and extended the Supreme Court's authority. But you also point out that there are some pretty significant differences between Bork and Bickle. You know, the main one is that Bork believed that the Warren Court had, you know, shattered the constraint of wisdom and tradition on judicial power, and that the only solution was theory. Could you elaborate on, on Bickle and Bork's relationship and, and explain how their theories can be understood in light of one another? You know, who were these guys and, and why are they still relevant to us today? Yeah, it's so interesting because Alexander Bickle, it, it seems odd to think of this now because he is, he is forgotten in many ways. But when he died, George Will called him the keenest public intellectual of our time. This is my, one of my favorite details. It didn't make it into the essay, but it's a great, it's a great fact is when the Yale Law School chapter of the Federalist Society was kind of discussing, well, what should we call the Federalist Society? Before they settled on the name, they actually seriously considered calling themselves the Alexander Bickle Society, which would have been a really interesting turn historically. So Bickle was, was extremely influential on a lot of the early conservative thinking about the role of the courts. And, and considering that he himself probably, in fact, probably almost certainly wouldn't consider himself an originalist if he were around to see that movement go rise to ascendancy. But in any case, was himself a liberal and was coming out of what's sometimes referred to as the legal process school and was trying to justify Brown against the prior progressive era commitment to judicial restraint. It is really interesting to see just how much he was latched onto by more conservative minded individuals. Of course, Bickle himself later on says he's a self-described Whig and respects the kind of organic development of, of constitutional, constitutionalism as it's applied and played out in our, in our political traditions. I think that appeal to Robert Bork, who was a colleague of, of Bickle's at Yale, they taught together. Robert Bork, although I, I think focusing on neutral principles, his landmark essay, it's fair to do this, focus on the very heavy theory that goes into Bork's judicial philosophy. It's also the case that Bork himself was, he had very similar skepticism toward rationalism that Alexander Bickle had. He was very respectful of the traditions and customs of the American people. He gave a speech here at AEI that I reference in, in, the, in the essay that says that, you know, Bickle's right when he says that all we ever had was a tradition when it came to interpreting these principles. We didn't rest on some general theory about how to understand the world. Um, it was an amalgamation of religion and morality and, and all these different kinds of additions to the, to the political mix of the West. But that tradition has been shattered, he says, by the Warren Court and its irrigation of authority. And so we need theory to respond to it. Yeah. And so that's, that's really where I think you see the departure. And an essay like Neutral Principles, which is a landmark essay in the history of originalism, is an attempt to try to come up with a comprehensive theoretical response. And so now we're in the situation for a lot of conservative judges where they have many of the same kind of attitudes toward a respect for tradition, a skepticism towards rationalistic thinking, a respect for the pluralism of the nation, all these things that, that Bickle had, um, and, and an openness to the idea that some of these guarantees are meant to be 
done and applied over time in light of our national experience. There's some openness to that, but at the same time, we're also doing this in the superstructure of this is the theory and we need to stick within the theory. And so conservatives are kind of wrestling perhaps unwittingly with, with Dekel and Bork right now. Yeah, that's a good lead into our next question, Will. You argue that Bork's insistence on a shift to a theory-driven originalism made sense from the perspective of opposing the Warren Court's excesses. But of course, you know, in the 50s and 60s, uh, conservatives would have told you there weren't really refined judges who appreciate our political traditions, um, you know, as Bickle would have liked, as he describes in his theory. You know, but fast forwarding to today, it seems that there are both political and principled reasons to kind of push back on this originalism that focuses too much on theory um, as Bork developed it. So, you know, what do you think has changed since Bork arrived on the scene? Why has this debate shifted on originalism? Well, maybe it's maybe a way to think about it is, and I mentioned this a little bit in the essay, talking about how Bickle's view of the judiciary presumes a certain kind of formation of judges in the habits and customs of our civilization and our traditions. I think one benefit to originalism and its kind of theoretical triumph has been precisely an introduction to our traditional ways of understanding Anglo-American legal norms. And so now you have justices and judges and some law professors and, and legal practitioners who very naturally are interested and inclined to want to consult history, to want to think about the stability of our guarantees over time, who have a respect for the deep roots of a lot of the traditions in our constitution. And so in many ways, the, the, the pump is kind of primed, perhaps because of the theoretical commitment to answer some of these questions about, well, what would be a legitimate decision uh, where the textual meaning isn't so clear? That you have judges who might now be more formed to appreciate this. And I think that's why, you know, I, I cite, I think, several examples toward the end of the piece about different areas of law where a commitment to a more tradition-based jurisprudence has been seemingly a very natural thing for many members of the court. Yeah, well, some of the, some of the stuff you're saying about Bickle and Bork <laughs> reminds me of my favorite passage from the essay, which reads, Bickle's approach offers originalists a less absolutist judicial philosophy, one that can keep originalism's contractarian tendencies at bay by refusing to resort to artificial historical analogies, reductionist reasoning, or conflating law with mechanical formulae. It is less concerned with technical meaning than with what we know from overarching principles, enduring practices, and what Alexis de Tocqueville called habits of the heart, those ingrained ways of living out the characteristics that shape a given people. You know, you also write that, that Samuel Alito is perhaps the justice who offers the most consistent and methodical incorporation of Bekelian insights into originalism and textualism. Can you elaborate on, on how Alito's jurisprudence serves as a kind of example in applying Bickle's theory in practice? You know, what distinguishes him from, for example, the other justices that you write extensively about and that we obviously all respect, like Scalia? Well, I think Justice Alito has cited publicly Alexander Bickle as, mm -hmm. as an influence on his own legal thinking. So it's not a, I don't think it's a huge surprise. Um, it came up as well during the course of his confirmation hearing. As, as someone who he would be a model for, Bickle would be a model for, for Justice Alito. And I think what you see in a lot of Justice Alito's opinions is what he has, I think, in one instance described as a practical originalism. And I think what that means and how it plays out in the examples I cite in the essay is there's a deep respect, I think, for the pluralism of the nation relative to other uh, self-described originalists. He is, I think, comparatively less concerned about the direct application of theory to practice. He's more willing to see a kind of variation in how 
constitutional and how communities kind of manifest their constitutional traditions. I think his free speech opinions are, are an especially good example of that. But, you know, a case that, that might be worth thinking about closely in this regard is, is uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. This is a case involving, involving the right of, of religious organizations to be accommodated as a function of the free exercise clause in the First Amendment. Justice Scalia, uh, famously or infamously, depending upon where you come down on Employment Division versus Smith, was very clear that the Supreme Court has never held that there is a right to accommodation under the Free Exercise Clause in the face of a neutral and generally applicable law. Uh, Justice Alito, in a 77-page concurring opinion in Fulton, profoundly disagreed with that, with that view. And, and even beyond Fulton, he has been a leader, I think, in the religion clause area. He wrote the Hobby Lobby opinion. He wrote Holt versus Hobbes. He's um, written a instrumental. He wrote Our Lady of Guadalupe involving religious autonomy, and some important separate opinions as well in these in this area. And and all of these opinions, I think, a thread that runs through them is, as I said, a respect for the kind of pluralism of the nation. A, a, a a willingness to embrace a less rigid approach to judicial review so long as we are operating consistently with our long tradition of accommodating diverse religious beliefs. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that perhaps the most Bekelian justice on the court and an area that has increasingly moved from these kind of hard and fast attempts to have an abstract understanding of the role of religion and government to something that's more practical and less rigid. I don't think it's a coincidence that he's had such a profound influence on that area. And it's also made, and that's the area of law where it's made a big move. I want to follow that up by, by bringing uh, you know, a new case in, into the discussion. And, and that's Bostock, specifically with regard to how, how Gorsuch, you know, who is certainly an originalist, approached that case differently than maybe Alito would have. You know, they both call themselves originalist. And to a certain extent, they both are, but they're, they're definitely different kinds of originalists. Can, can you explain to, to our listeners, and within the context of that case, how Alito would have thought differently and approached that case differently than Gorsuch did? So I think, as I mentioned in the essay w with Bostock, and then also with a case called McGirt, right. which Justice Gorsuch also wrote, and there were separate opinions from the other originalists on the court, I think you see a similar dynamic playing out, which is, is there something beyond the plain text that is relevant to the, in that case, the textualist inquiry, but you could make the same statement about originalism generally. Like, is there something beyond a kind of abstract linguistic theory that is appropriate to consider when interpreting a text? And if you look at, if you were to take Justice Gorsuch's opinion for the court in those cases and say Justice Alito's dissent in Bostock and put them together, it's clear that they are just considering different bodies of evidence. And there is a, there is a substantial debate among originalists about, well, to what extent should, be, should we be rewarding this kind of evidence versus that kind of evidence when assessing the textual meaning of a given provision? Should we take this more theoretical, abstract approach? that kind of disembodies the text from the culture in which it was enacted? Or should we take a, an approach that accounts for, as I, as I quote in the essay, that law is the product of a particular place and a particular people at a particular time? And we have to think about what they were thinking about if we're going to faithfully understand this provision. I think that's really the, the core of the dispute there. And so that gets back to this, this foundational point about where originalism is, which is, is this simply a theory is the ascendancy of, of originalism just a commitment to a kind of linguistic theory? 
Or is it a deeper, more substantive commitment to something about how we understand the American political tradition? And even within that tradition, there are different strands. Are we going to account for that in interpretation or not? All right, well, so before we let you go, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about the Supreme Court case that everyone's talking about, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. You know, of course, obviously, uh, recently there was a leaked draft opinion of the case which suggests the justices will overturn both Roe and Casey. And that would send back the, the question of you know, whether to have abortion restrictions or more access to principally state lawmakers, maybe federal lawmakers will weigh in too. I know you mentioned that the Beckett Fund, uh, who you worked for, filed a brief in the case, but really kind of directly relevant to your essay. You know, how do you think the judicial philosophy of originalism and the debates we're having now about what that actually means, how will that play a role in the court's final ruling? Uh, and then also, you know, what do you think that the impact of the case will be on the future of the conservative legal movement, which, as you, start, you know, point out at the start of your essay, has had a great triumph with originalism, but there are some questions going forward. So how do you think the Dobbs case might affect the future of that movement? Just a couple of caveats up front here. The, the Beckett Fund doesn't take a position on abortion as such. The Beckett Fund defends religious liberty. And the brief that Beckett filed, which I encourage people listening to this to go look at, is focused precisely upon the effect of constitutionalized abortion on the free, on the free exercise of religion and religious liberty more broadly. And the thrust of that position which I think is relevant to this discussion, is that by constitutionalizing this divisive social question, what has happened to the law is that all of these other commitments that are deeply rooted in our traditions, like a commitment to practical religious accommodation, have been, have been threatened and needlessly so. And that you have actually made debate around a difficult, controversial social question more divisive because the court hasn't hasn't respected the traditional allocation of, of power on, on these kinds of issues. And I think that goes to exactly the same kind of issue of, are we going to respect the traditional role of the judiciary in relation to the rest of American life, political life and cultural life or not? Well, uh, thank you so much for being here. That was a fascinating conversation. Uh, we really appreciate you discussing your piece with us. It was my pleasure. It's good to be with you guys again. If you'd like to read Will's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com. Consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.